1937, a man named Leroy M. Hilliard bought some land about a 20-minute drive from Lewiston, Maine, a booming mill town at that time. And he worked in the shipyard nights and farmed during the day. Uh, had a few milk cows. The farm was a vision of what most would call the American dream. Nestled in the heart of central Maine, between fields of grass and woodland. The farm grew as it passed from one generation to the next. My father, every time he had a chance, bought more land to go with it. Eventually, Leroy's grandson, Charlie Hilliard, took over. My name is Charlie Hilliard. This is my wife, Kathy, and we've lived here all our life. And that's the story of how the Hilliards became third-generation Maine dairy farmers, joining the long tradition of the small, family-owned farm. But it's a tradition that's in danger today. As I sat with the Hilliards at their kitchen table, they shared with me a story that's become all too common in rural America. Do you remember the moment you decided to sell the farm? I think every year when the tax bill came, got us thinking about it because, you know, obviously we weren't getting younger every year, we were getting older, and how do you ever slow down and retire? It's the story of a vanishing way of life. Price of machinery, the price of grain, the price of taxes and insurance, all that stuff has just climbed steadily. Milk prices do not climb with it. That's why we got out of it. For decades now, family farmers have been left behind by an industry many of them were born into, forced to sell their land. Most of that land has been overtaken by urban sprawl and development, or bought up by big factory farms that make it really difficult for the small farm to compete. I feel it would be impossible for anybody to start today if they didn't have it somehow left to them down through the generations. Between 2012 and 2017 alone, this nation lost 70,000 farmers and 14 million acres of farmland. As family farms are disappearing, we've all been paying the price. Without a local food ecosystem, fresh, high-quality, healthy food has become a marker of wealth when it doesn't need to be. And the global pandemic and climate change are making matters worse. When COVID-19 swept across the U.S. in 2020, the need for emergency food assistance exploded, and that led experts to label hunger as the secondary pandemic. Compounding the issue, rising food prices caused by labor shortages, transportation costs, and supply chain disruptions. This is what really brings me to Maine. I'm here to meet a group of new Americans who are making it possible for folks here to get the food they need locally. These new Americans are refugees from Somalia who are pioneering a new model that just might save an old American way of life the family farm. From Higher Ground and Futuro Studios, I'm your host, Heather McGee. And this is The Sum of Us, a podcast documenting my journey around the United States in search of hope and solidarity. There's a phrase often used in Maine, from away. It's how Mainers describe anyone that isn't from Maine. 
If I moved from Brooklyn to Maine, I would definitely be from away. It's an idea that can be taken to almost comical extremes. Take the Hilliards, for example, the dairy farmers we heard from. I'm from originally down Belfast. I'm down that way. I'm a coastal girl. As far back as Kathy Hilliard can trace her family, they've been Mainers. There's um, generations and generations and generations through the years. But even still, she was considered from away when she moved to a different county in Maine. Neighbors would tell her, You're not from here. You're not a native. Even though we're born and raised in Maine, we were not a native to the county because we weren't born in the county. From away is not a term of endearment, as Charlie explained to me. It's often used by Mainers to describe people they think want to disrupt the way things are. It's a thing where no matter who comes to a different area, it seems like they have an idea of how to make things better. I'm telling you this to give you a sense of how much pride Mainers take in their roots and in their relationship to this land of mountains, lakes, and coastline. In Maine, folks from away are deemed a little suspect. And the story we're telling today is about a group of people who are really from away. Very far away. Over the last few decades, thousands of Somali people have come to Maine. Today, I'm in Lewiston, a former mill town, visiting the offices of the Somali Bantu Community Association. When I get there, people are drinking coffee and chatting away. They've come here to hang out, something they can't do outside because Maine is freezing cold. It's February. Ah, America, good. And you like Maine's? Maine, Yeah. Maine, This is my first place, and I don't know anywhere else, and I love it. I'm here 16 years, and I don't know anywhere else. The man translating there is Muhyiddin Liba. I am the executive director and also the co-founder of Somali Bantu Community Association. Muhyiddin is warm and magnetic. He's the father of 10 daughters, yes, 10 daughters, and a tireless community leader. People bring him their problems, big and small, whether it's immigration paperwork or a note sent home from school in a kid's backpack. And he helps. He's kind of the unofficial mayor of the Somali Bantu community here. They just came here to talk and, and, and have a cup of coffee. Sometimes they need something done for them. They will go to my office on the left. As you heard, Muhyiddin and his community are all in for Maine. They love it here. But Lewiston is a far cry from where he was born, Somalia's Juba Valley. See, in the late 1980s, civil war broke out in Somalia. Clans took up arms against other clans. Just a warning, this part of the story might be hard for some people to hear. It was a Friday morning around 4 o'clock a.m. An ethnic minority descended from enslaved people in Somalia. The Bantu were targeted with genocidal violence. Muhyiddin was just seven years old when the men came. We were all asleep, and the whole town was asleep. 
Soldiers from ethnic Somali clans subjected the Bantu to mass killings, rapes, and forced starvation so they could seize the fertile lands they lived on. Muhyiddin, with his family and a neighbor girl, fled. And we end up running towards Kenya. It was 23 days nonstop. They slept only a few hours a day as they tried to escape the country on foot. He says in the war, there were so many unburied bodies that wild animals got accustomed to eating human remains. So they know the taste of the human being and they really, really are looking forward to eat people. So we had to have our guards up. Finally, Muhyiddin reached the Kenyan border. The girl he fled with would later become his wife, Fadumo. From age 14 to 30, Muhyiddin lived in refugee camps in Kenya. He received a formal education, something that Bantus in Somalia had had little access to, and he learned how to speak English. He and Fadumo started their family. We got a foster daughter in 1997, our second daughter in 1999. That year, their family were part of the 12,000 Somali Bantus who were granted asylum in the largest resettlement of African refugees ever to the United States. The Bantu refugees were scattered all across the U.S., often first in cities. But urban life, many found, was not for them. These people came from a very, very rural area of Somalia. They started looking for a rural area to live. They set out to find a place that was quiet, relatively walkable, and could accommodate large families. Some, who had been resettled nearby in Portland, discovered that Lewiston fit the bill. So one family started to come to Lewiston, and they started reporting back to everyone, saying that, oh, this is better than where I was. Today, there are more than 7,000 Somali people in Lewiston. Keep in mind that the total population of the city is about 36,000. So this very small, very white place suddenly became about 20% Black, a higher percentage than even in Maine's more cosmopolitan center, Portland. Muhyiddin and others formed the Somali Bantu Community Association of Maine to help the people integrate into life in the U.S., They did not know how to rent a house, lease, and electricity, and all this. The Somali Bantu made a life in Lewiston, working at local stores, factories, bakeries. But as they settled into their new lives here, Muhyiddin and the Bantu community felt that something was still missing. One thing kept coming up in their meetings. Then we started thinking, what's left now? What was missing was the only way of life they'd ever known, the thing they knew how to do best. What was missing was farming. We have been farming all our lives, and all our ancestors were farmers. Farming is an essential part of Somali Bantu culture. And when they looked around them in rural Maine, there seemed to be land everywhere calling to be farmed. And so Muhyiddin was given a new mission from his people. The pressure from the community was mounting on us to go out and look for a piece of land. A group of Black, Muslim refugees looking for land in rural Maine. Should be easy, right? 
Picture the American family farmer, and you're probably visualizing that classic painting, American Gothic, a white couple, older, like the Hilliards we heard from before. But actually, that wasn't always the case. At the start of the 20th century, there were more black farmers in this country than white farmers. There are about nine million Negroes in our southern states, and the majority of them live on farms. While many of these farmers have achieved independence and perhaps prosperity, all too many barely make a living. But decades of discrimination by banks and the U.S. government have nearly erased the black farm from the American landscape. Today, over 95% of farm owners in the U.S. are white. And in Maine, that number is more like 99%. Mohedon wasn't aware of any of this when he started calling around looking for land to rent. But he quickly realized that the people he was contacting were acting a little strange. Sometimes people will say, yes, oh, okay, let's go. They show you around and they give you, they say, this is a piece of land. Is it okay? We are like, yeah, 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 yeah. We got excited. And we set up a next steps to call. When we call the person, the person is changed. They don't want to hear you. They don't want to receive a phone call from you. Sometimes they threaten to like sue you if you call them again. Muhidin's maybe too polite to say this was racism, but that's sure what it sounds like. Muhidin came from a place with its own caste system, where the ethnic Somalis, who are lighter-skinned, are at the top, whereas the Bantu... A Bantu person looks like more African. So you look more like me. I look more like you, exactly. Which placed the Bantu squarely at the bottom of the hierarchy in Somalia. And in the U.S., they found themselves in that same position. You know, we are just being labeled as African-American, and we end up getting the same treatment. Nobody would trust us. Beyond being Black and Muslim, in the whitest state in the country, the Bantu were also refugees. And that came with its own particular baggage. People were being fed with misinformation that everybody who is coming into Maine is looking for welfare. In the 2000s, as the refugee population in Maine grew, politicians began to see an opportunity to stoke resentment, to make a cultural wedge issue, to turn this white, largely working-class state against welfare and government assistance because it was going to people from away. Refugees from conflict zones and failed states half a world away are arriving in the United States looking for a place to live. More than 5,000 Somalis have moved to Lewiston since 2000. Soon after their arrival, the refugees became the issue that dominated Lewiston politics. And in 2011, Lewiston elected this guy as their mayor. You come and you accept our culture and you leave your culture at the door. That's Bob McDonald. If you want to come in here and you want to celebrate your holidays, I don't care. Just don't try to insert your culture, which obviously isn't working, into ours, which does. McDonald's political campaign was centered around his staunch opposition to immigration and welfare. His message was classic drained pool politics, rallying people to oppose government spending with the false idea that services are mostly going to people of color. And in Maine, in the early 2000s, drain pool politics was a winning Republican formula. That same year, 
Maine swore in its first Republican governor in 16 years, Lewiston native Paul LePage, a guy who was taped saying this at a press conference. When you go to war, if you know the enemy, the enemy dresses in red and you dress in blue, you shoot at red. You try to identify the enemy. And the enemy right now, the overwhelming majority of people coming in are people of color or people of Hispanic origin. If you didn't catch that, the enemy, he says, is people of color. LePage and McDonald were both reelected with campaigns focusing on refugees and welfare. It's not hard to make an anti-welfare argument and find supporters for it. That's Phil Nadeau, who worked for the Lewiston government around this time. Well, the facts are that, you know, Lewiston was spending less money for general assistance than it was back in the 1980s and 1990s. Despite the facts, the belief that Somalis only came to the state for welfare is still strongly held by quite a few people in the community. Our producers found that out firsthand outside a busy local hot dog stand where they asked some locals about their new Somali neighbors. They get everything free, you know, cars, and they get a job, and new cars, you know. They don't have to pay for nothing. Who gives them these cars? Probably, you know, probably our taxes or something. I don't know. Or the government maybe give them the cars. She then told us that her husband had even stronger feelings about them and guided our producers over to her car where her husband sat in the driver's seat. Warning, you're about to hear some offensive language. I don't like Somalians, and I do not like niggers. If one crosses in front of me, I'll run them over. They're taking out the, uh, the people's jobs from here, you know? They're taking it over everything. They're in the Congress now, you know? They're into our schools, you know? They get everything they want for nothing. They get everything they want for nothing. I asked Phil if this myth held any water. Did Somalis get a free car when they moved to Lewiston? Of course not. The Somali migration to Lewiston has been a point of tension for conservatives for years. People like Tucker Carlson, who lives mostly in Maine, have pointed to Lewiston as an example of why immigration is bad for our country, stoking white fear around being replaced by immigrants and people of color. What I'm so struck by is that no one has ever asked the American people their view of this. If you live in Minneapolis or Lewiston, Maine, or places into which many thousands of Somali refugees have been moved from refugee camps in Kenya, no one ever asked you what you thought of this. It's your town, and yet your consent is never requested. It's forced infiltration. Completely. And if you you raise your hand and say, wait, what's the point of this? Shut up, nativist. You're attacked. Your motives are attacked. But here's the thing. Before the refugees came, Lewiston's population was dwindling. It reversed a population decline that had been going on for 30 years. Which meant its economy was dwindling. You can't be a dying community uh, in terms of your population and expect a community to succeed economically. The African refugees spurred a dramatic turnaround in Lewiston's economy. They're filling vacant apartments that were vacant for a long time. They're filling vacant storefronts that on Lisbon Street that were vacant. Where there was once decline, there's now abundance. That's Mama Shukri's store. I want to go in there. Now, instead of abandoned and boarded up buildings, 
Lisbon Street, Lewiston's main thoroughfare, is lined by Somali-owned shops and restaurants where anyone can drop in and get a piping hot sambusa and wash it down with some spicy herbal chai. We just walked into Mama Shukri's store. It's got kind of everything you could want. It's got fresh food and fruits and vegetables. This store owner says that white Mainers tell her they love her food. Yeah, I have a lot of American customers, a lot. Yeah, they call me Mama Africa. <laughs> yeah. A bipartisan think tank calculated that the state's African immigrant households contributed almost $200 million in state and local taxes in one year. Nonetheless, Governor LePage ended Maine's refugee program in 2016. To Mahedon, the idea that he and his community worked hardworking was absurd. We were the people putting food on the table for the whole country of Somalia. And for somebody to say we are not hard workers, it, it, it takes a toll on us. And it was really, really hard to convince somebody that you farm or you are a farmer. I felt for Mahedon. It was enslavers who first concocted the myth that Black people are lazy. That's why, the logic went, our ancestors had to be chained and tortured into working. And today, the myth of Black laziness is still one that serves to prop up the powerful. Many politicians use it to give poor white people a reason to resent poor Black people instead of being angry at the people who actually have the power to ship away the jobs or pay too little for the ones that are left. So Muhyiddin and his fellow Bantu New Mainers had walked into a very old story. Looking for a piece of land to farm for six years, Muhyiddin got rejection after rejection. Until one day... It was, I think, uh, in the middle of April 2014... Uh, I got a call from Jim. Jim is Jim Hanna, just a regular guy who was on a spiritual mission to connect people through food. He wanted to support the Somalis, so he started a project with the city government to help immigrants start farming in Maine. And he says, I know a couple, and here is their phone number. I did not trust a phone call. I, I did not want to call them. I say, Jim, why don't we set up a time and you, I need you to be in the room just to have a leverage? The leverage is that Jim is white. Why was it important for Jim to be in the room? There were several times I did it by myself that it fall apart. So now I need Jim to be in the room. So now, with a white ally in the room to help advocate for him, Muhyiddin finally got a lease. And the excitement in the community was big. Once they were finally able to farm, there was one thing that the Bantu immediately wanted to grow. We were like, okay, where's the corn? Where can we get African corn? They wanted Somali flint corn, the corn they grew all their lives. And luckily... We had a farmer who had some corn in the very old luggage he came with, and he started to secretly grow it. They had 20 farmers, some ferreted away Somali corn seeds, 
and a lease for two acres of farmland to start with. We are farming without any equipment right now. We are just using our strength to produce food, uh, which is the easiest way that we know. It's slow, hard, uh, sweating job, but we like to do it. And that is how we have been doing forever. The Bantu use long sticks that they plunge into the earth to make holes, which they drop a mixture of seeds in. The refugees were doing by hand what their neighbors were doing with big, expensive machines. People have like six, seven tractors in one farm. I don't know what they do with that. (laughs) They called their farming project Liberation Farms. Once the people in the state of Maine saw us farming, the trust started coming in, and people started opening their farms for us. The Somali Bantu started leasing more land. They were selling fennel, kale, tomatoes, and other crops in farmers' markets, and even got some commercial contracts for their corn. Lynn Rowe owns Tortilleria Pachanga and uses the Somali flint corn in her tortillas. She was Liberation Farms' first big commercial customer. This climate, I mean, you, it's freezing, you know, and it's hard. It's, it's, and a lot, of, a lot of farmers who've lived in this area for many years really find corn hard to grow, and they're, they're growing it really well. I took a visit to Lynn's factory. One by one, hot tortillas came down the belt on the machine. So you can see it's, it's a lot of it is white, but then there's some yellow and then like purpley and burgundy and there's some orangey ones. And some of them have these like striations that are really cool looking. I snatched one up. Oh my gosh. Wow. Oh my gosh, it's so good. This might be the best tortilla I've ever had. Mmm. Yeah, it's amazing. It really was. And I eat a lot of tortillas. So what started as a dream for the Bantu was becoming real. They were doing the work they loved and helping to feed Maine like they did back in Somalia. But at the end of every growing season, an anxiety crept in. Nobody will give you the guarantee that you will come back to this land next year. People were just saying, oh, let's wait and see. Let's wait and see. After investing a year or two cultivating a piece of land, they would end up having to leave it. Owners wouldn't renew their leases for various reasons. Some people simply cashed out and sold the land for development. So we decided to look around for a piece of land that is more secure, because these lands were not secure. Mohidin decided it was time for the Bantu community to buy land for themselves. And I said, okay, I don't have the money, I don't have the experience, and I need to have a piece of land. How do we do this? Farming, for his people, was just too important to lose. And when you see Somali Bantu farmers farming, it is there at peace. While Muhyiddin and his community of farmers struggled to secure land year after year, 
about 20 minutes away, Charlie and Kathy Hilliard struggled to hold on to their land year after year. We were third generation on that farm, and I never was comfortable with the way we were paid all the time we were doing it. The Hilliards are the dairy farmers we heard from at the beginning of the story. This is not a paved road. You can hear the dirt and the rocks coming up in the tires of the four-wheel drive. The road on the way to the Hilliards was lined with trees and little sugar houses where the sap is boiled down and turned into golden brown Maine maple syrup. The ground was still frozen when I arrived, but their home was warmed by a crackling fireplace. I'll move this bowl out of the way. You guys make yourself comfortable. This home is so beautiful. I interviewed them at their home. There was antique farming equipment on the walls. Huge windows looked out onto sheer wilderness. For years, Charlie and Kathy loved the simple life that farming offered them. Kathy especially loved the animals. The cows were more pets than they were business, put it that way, for her. But they were getting squeezed between the low prices the dairy companies paid them for their milk and the high costs of farming, no matter how much work they put in. You don't work a week and then you have a couple of weeks off. This is seven days a week, every week of the year. And there is no vacation and you have a few hours in between. Dairy farming is an expensive form of farming. It typically costs more to produce a gallon of milk than what a farmer will get paid for it. The pressure they felt to pay off their farm debts loomed over their lives for decades. There was a lot of sleepless nights. There was a lot of seven-day, more than 24 hours a day stints, and it didn't seem all worth it at that point. Do you two have children? We do. We have three children. They were all raised at the farm. Mm -hmm. They all did chores before they went to school, and they decided that wasn't really what they wanted. They wanted their weekends off and, you know, and we wouldn't want them to do it if their heart wasn't in it. Seeing what I see out there now, I'm glad they didn't. By 2020, the Hilliards decided it was time to just sell the farm. Around the same time, Muhyiddin was crisscrossing the state, reaching out to anyone who would listen, hoping to find somebody to help his community buy land. We were at a regional gathering and took a walk together. This is Ian McSweeney. I'm the director of Agrarian Trust. Muhyiddin had met Ian a few years ago and had told him about his desire to buy land for his community. I could see his eyes opening wider and wider. Ian brought up an idea. What about creating an agrarian commons? It's a model based on community land trusts, which were pioneered during the civil rights era, by Black farmer activists in the South. Here's how it works. A community joins together to create a charity or a trust that owns the land, and then everyone in the community gets the right to use it. As a model, this agrarian commons idea wasn't so different from what the Bantu had always done. Private ownership is foreign to them, and and that is not a concept that they really were aware of until coming to this country. Can you describe some more examples of of what it feels like to be a part of the Bantu community in in Maine? We have a culture where 
Like one thing happened to you, happens to everybody. They do everything together. Every town has their own box of money for weddings, for funeral. And, and you don't have to worry about anything. You just contribute on a monthly basis. This idea of common purpose carries over to their approach to farming as well. Farmland for the Somali Bantus has been held in a community collective where elders uh, grant use of that land for people to grow food and sustain community, but individuals do not own that land. And so the Bantu decided to partner with Agrarian Trust. Now all they needed to do was find the right piece of land. So we found one piece. They said no. Uh, they set up a time and they, they, they decided to back away. There was another piece of land. It was for sale. And when we approached them, they said it's not for sale. And then we found Charlie. Mohidin drove out to meet him. He, he's a mechanic. And uh, I remember knocking on his door while he's fixing a car. He was under a car that is on a lift. And I knocked on the door and he, he came out to me. He was so friendly and he's soft-spoken and speaks slowly. And he said, okay, I, I am receiving, that was this word, I'm receiving a lot of people. If you want to go and walk the land, we can. But I have like six appointments to come in and walk the land. And that is when I was like, oh, we are on a tough competition. We had people beating the door down to have that property for solar. In the past couple of years, farmers in Maine have been swamped with big money offers from developers and solar companies who are willing to pay $1,000 an acre, far more than what the land is worth as farmland. Dedicated farmers, the Hilliards wanted to see their land remain in farming, preferably organic, the way they did it. After 46 years, we've been married. We've worked on those fields and every piece of that land all those years. You know, I would hate to see it turned into a trailer park. Out of all the offers they got, Charlie and Kathy seemed most interested in the Bantus. It would keep the land in farming. But not all of their neighbors were happy with this idea. They were a few people who approached Charlie and and asked them uh, not to sell to us. Charlie says he had one neighbor in particular march over to his house to voice his concerns. I said, would you rather look out across that field and see Somalis out there hoeing corn and growing their food and and making a living? Or would you rather look at a trailer park or a solar farm? And would you rather have those same people that have the ability to grow their food? Would you rather have them in a welfare line somewhere? You're not going to have it both ways. A lot of people, if they could have tired and feathered us, they would have. But Kathy made the parallel between these new Mainers, the Somalis, and the last generation of folks to become Mainers from away. French-Canadian Catholics who had come to work the mills generations ago. I mean, we have a, a friend of ours. He's 88 years old, and he was from Canada. And he spoke no English when he came here. And there was a lot of resentment about the Canadians when they moved to Lewiston. Anybody that's not the same, you know, or, or has different culture or different, different ways. Despite the backlash, 
Charlie decided to sell his farm to Agrarian Trust and the Somali Bantu Community Association. And so the Bantu and Agrarian Trust launched a fundraiser to help purchase the Hilliard farm. Around the same time, the news of George Floyd's murder swept the nation. Here's Bo Dennis of the Maine Organic Farmers and Gardeners Association. All of a sudden, it seemed like rural, primarily white farmers were open to a conversation of, huh, like, we've never looked at our farming community and realized, like, who isn't here and who isn't a part of it. And overnight, the fundraiser took on a deeper meaning. Donations started pouring in from people all over Maine. This was kind of an opportunity for a lot more farmers to lean into that question of, like, what is the platform we hold? What is our responsibility as, like, rural, primarily white farmers to lift each other up in a way that actually includes an inclusive farming system in Maine? People were calling us, they were fundraising, they were donating money, they were donating time. They had just about six months to raise the money. Bake sales, concerts, anything would help. They met their goal in two months. Hello, hello, hello. JJ. Hi. Uh, my name is Mahedin Liba. I'm the director for Somali Bantu Community Association. Uh, welcome. I went back to Maine for a celebration the Bantu organized to launch the first growing season on their new land. It was 80 degrees and sunny in mid-May, the most beautiful day Mainers had seen all year. The grass was lush and dotted with yellow dandelions, and there wasn't a cloud in sight. There's tables with white Mainers and Bantu people, men and women, children playing around, blowing bubbles. Everybody's talking and smiling and breaking bread. It was really moving to be able to look around and see all the people that had been impacted by Muhyiddin's journey and the countless acts of solidarity along the way. People like Hawa, the eldest of Muhyiddin's 10 daughters at 25 years old. It's amazing and I'm very proud of him. <laughs> A Bantu elder named Ahmed He's the one who brought the flint corn in his tattered suitcase across the sea. And some new friends and fellow farmers, like Bonnie Rukin. I think Muhyiddin is in dreamland come true. <laughs> Bonnie is a retired organic farmer. She describes herself as a close friend of Muhyiddin's and a big supporter of the way the Bantu are farming in Maine. I believe in cooperatives and collaboratives. I believe that our world is missing that connection, and certainly that connection or disconnection has been highlighted in the last two years of the pandemic. So any chance to get back to that and build it is a promise that I would like to work towards. Mainers who've been here for generations, and the Somali Bantu, are all connected by their dedication to the first work, farming the work that makes life possible. I have a plate piled high with Somali food. We've got chicken, we've got rice, something called sour ugali, which is like, um, my people would call it grits, uh, and it is so delicious. Mm. 
Mm. It's really good. Offering a stranger the food from your culture is a universal language. I feel welcomed and nourished. Cabbage. This is the tomatoes that I was telling you guys earlier. The celebration is an almost absurdly idyllic picture of what can happen in these small communities when neighbors old and new roll up their sleeves and link arms across race, religion, and origin to preserve a way of life that they all hold dear. Leathers, broccolinis, watermelons, mm. squash. Or rather, in the case of the American family farm, not just preserve it, but renew it, make it stronger through collective action. Rather than having one family uh, owning the land and farming the land, if we can like bring communities together and, and, and have a farming together, that would be a good model to, to try. Are you happy to be farming now to have little Juba? Ha! Yes. Thanks to Muhyiddin, his community, and the allies that have supported them, Maine has just gained over 220 new farmers in its local food system who are growing local, sustainable food. And finally, after losing their land, their home, and resettling across the world in this very different place, at long last, the Bantu community of Maine have land that they can call their own. And as a reminder of where they came from, they've named their farm here the Little Juba Central Maine Agrarian Commons. I see a sense of peace. I see a sense of community. I see Juba Valley coming back alive and, and in, a, in a better place than where it used to be. During the growing ceremony, one by one, many of the male Bantu elders stood up and they began to pray, thanking God for their community, their safety, their crops, and for the peace that now defines their lives. Next time on The Sum of Us, we head to a small town in Nevada where people hear a siren every single day. Yes, it's it. And on a still day, you could hear it for. You could probably hear it almost halfway to the to the foothills over there. This siren has been sounding in Minden, Nevada, for decades. Originally meant to warn indigenous people to leave town before dark, a sundown siren. I'm looking down that alley, wondering 
How many of our people had to hide over there? How many people had to hide, get off of Main Street so that they can get a ride or start walking home? I'll tell you the stories of the unlikely pair fighting to silence the siren and heal from some of our nation's oldest wounds on our next episode. From Higher Ground, this is The Some of Us, created and hosted by me, Heather McGee, and produced by Futuro Studios. Our producers are Kasim Shepard, Ryan Kailoth, Emil Sequiros, Joaquin Cutler, and Juan Diego Ramirez, with help from Liliana Ruiz, Sophia Lowe, Susanna Kemp, and Alyssa Vladimir. Our senior producers are Nicole Rothwell, Jeannie Montalvo, and Fernanda Echavari. We're edited by Sandy Ratley and Maria Garcia. Additional editing for this episode by Marlon Bishop. Executive produced for Futuro by Marlon Bishop. Mixing by Stephanie LeBeau, Julia Caruso, and Elisheba Etoup. With help from Gabriela Baez. Research by Lynn Cantor and Carolyn Lipka. Executive producers for Higher Ground are Mukta Mohan, Dan Fearman, Anna Holmes, and Janae Marable. Jenna Levin is our editorial assistant. Executive producers for Spotify are Daniel Eck, Don Ostroff, Julie McNamara, and Corinne Gilliard. Our original music and theme song is by The Sacred Souls. Join us for the next episode of The Sum of Us, a podcast in search of hope and solidarity.